You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is Dean Vickerman. Dean is an Australian professional basketball coach and former player who is the head coach of Melbourne United in the Australian National Basketball League. He started his coaching career in 1997, progressing through roles across Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. Between 2007 and 2012, he served as an assistant coach for the New Zealand Breakers in the Australian National Basketball League, helping them win three championships in a row. In 2013, he became head coach of the New Zealand Breakers, and in the 2015 season, he guided the Breakers to their fourth NBL championship in five years. In March 2017, Dean was appointed head coach of Melbourne United, and a year later, they won the NBL championship. In 2018 and again in 2019, he was voted the NBL Coach of the Year. Dean was wonderful to talk to and very generous with his time. The highlights of our discussion were his description of training sessions and how it's everyone's responsibility to try and make somebody else better, how he trusts and works with his assistants, and he shares a great story from their championship game when there is 1.7 seconds left on the clock to illustrate this. And the way he uses blue zone thinking to remain calm. 
I was so inspired after this discussion that I went straight out and shot hoops. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So, Dean, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Look forward to the chat. No, we are as well. Uh, I know that you're in Melbourne right now and uh, I'm in Prague. I'm going to start with a really banal question. What are you doing today? Today, uh, we've been fortunate enough, obviously in stage three of lockdown in Melbourne, um, that elite sport has been allowed to continue to practice. So um, we're in at um, MSAC, uh, which is uh, the major facility in town for, for sport. Uh, as practice, and we've got three days a week booked in there, a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday right now. So um, even though our season doesn't start until December, um, it feels like Mental Health Day every uh, every second day right now where we actually get together um, as a team or what we have with our team right now and um, really try and make practice a lot of fun at the moment and let people forget about, you know, their isolation and their situations where they don't get a chance to travel or holiday or see family or all the things that they're a little bit deprived of right now. So um, today was a home day and, um, yeah, get to do things like this. Well, let's jump in and talk about your uh, your coaching experience then. I'd, I'd like to start by asking you or, or talking a little bit about the great apprenticeship you had before you became a head coach in the NBL. You were lucky enough to work with people like Lindsay and Andrew Gaze, Andre Lamar, just to name a few. You know, from these experiences, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? Yeah, I was extremely fortunate. Um, You know, all the coaches that I had, you know, I had Brett Brown as my under um, 18 coach and then my under 20 state coach um, for Victoria and obviously has gone on to coach Australia and, and coach, um, you know, the 76ers in the NBA and San Antonio and some of the some most amazing teams. So, you know, to have him and then Lindsay Gaze um, as my coach before that um, and then to work once I left playing um, to Al Westover and Andre Lamanis and um, Gordy McLeod and the year in Singapore and um, just amazing coaches and, you know, you, when you look at, say, what's their, their passion, their commitment to um, their work and their attention to detail, to things that are most important to them. Um, and they all had different most importance. Lindsay's total importance was on the offensive side of the game. Um, Al was a little bit more balanced. Um, you know, Gordy was just a attention to detail on every little screen and how you moved out of it. And so fortunate enough, Brett Brown was the greatest player manager that I've ever met. He made people believe that they could be um, so much better than they were. Just a you know, really good salesman um, to, in, in, to players and their, their motivations um, to continue to, to, to be better than they thought they were. So yeah, it's such a package of coaches that I had and, and I like, a lot of people say you try to take a little bit from everything or something that you didn't like that coaches did and and, and put it into your own. So if I was to drill in a little bit there and you talk about Brett being great as a salesman um, and being great at man management, do you think that's something that really sets apart uh, some of the great coaches you've been with versus some of the guys who, or girls that probably have had great intention, but haven't managed to really be as successful? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the, the building of relationships and the trust that has to come uh, between, you know, a player and a coach is, is so important. And, and I look at the years where I've been highly successful and, and the years that, are, that I haven't won. And, and to me, it's mostly the common thread is that the relationships that you build in those years where you felt like you failed or didn't exceed, achieve what you want to achieve, you just didn't build them to the level that you did in the championship years. Um, you know, you didn't follow your, your own trademark or your vision as well in those years. And, and a lot of that comes back to how you communicated, you know, with your players in that time. Now, you were part of the Breakers coaching staff when they won, you know, four championships in five years. Three of those as the assistant, but one as the head coach. And, and I've heard you say that chemistry culture was the difference at the Breakers. When you're trying to improve, improve a team's culture, what should you do first? Yeah, and I'm you know, so fortunate to be a part of that Breakers organisation through those years. Um, I'm sure I will never experience a greater ownership um, than we had in, in Paul and Liz Blackwell. Um, just amazing people. Um, owned, owned a supermarket but got into the um, into basketball because their kids just loved the game. And then they saw that as a vehicle to put back um, and how to, in their own way, shape um, the community a little bit more through through the sport of basketball and, and spread their values. And so we were a club that, you know, tried to live up to, to their standards and tried to live up uh, to the values that they set. And, you, you know, when you were about to do something that you thought was outside of those boundaries and it was sat in the back of your mind all the time, you know, uh, how would Paul and Liz think about this? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it really did. It was the club culture was, it was kind of just really set there and, but you saw him, how he dealt with people, how he dealt with, we still had mistakes. Players made, you know, made poor judgments and poor errors off the court. And, um, you know, how amazing he was in giving people second chances and um, continuing to try and develop people and accepting that they were going to make mistakes. But just how the club learned from it, how those players learned from it, how we, how we move forward um, as a club. You know, Corey Webster was an amazing example who... We messed up and we made a decision as a leadership group to send him to China and go and practice with a team in China for three months or three or four months. I think we sent him to there and he went and worked and was in a totally foreign environment, different language. Um, but it made him a, a much better player and he gained so much respect when he rejoined our team um, for, for what we did to have him prove that he was ready to be a breaker again. Um, so how do you change culture? Um, you know, culture is something that's values based, but, you know, behavior led and, you know, it's, it's about holding everybody accountable yourself, um, you know, to those, to those values and, and those behaviors and, um, you know, making sure everybody's trying to live them daily. I heard um, Steve Kerr talk recently. He's obviously been in, in the news a lot because of his uh, participation in the Jordan documentary. And he talked about the value, the number one value in his team being joy. And it, I thought it was such a strange but unique concept. What are the values that you try to bring forward when you're coaching? 
Yeah, no, I've listened to that same one with Steve, and and, yeah. and it's real. You know, I had a coach that was uh, on their um, G League staff and spent um, training camp with with the Warriors, and he said, you know, you walk in there if you were a coach, and you're like, wow, it's such a disrespectful environment. The 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 throwing basketballs everywhere. They've got music blasting. You know, the it, it looks like they're not listening to the strength and conditioning coach, and you know, but the they've got a way to say, you know, there's some things are um, acceptable, and right now, if you're getting your work done and still having fun doing it, um, we can, you know, we can we can all live with it. And when it comes time to roll the balls out and compete, and then things change a little bit. But um, they have they definitely had a lot of fun in, in the way that they went about their basketball. Um, you know, we, we set our trademark, and our, our trademark in New Zealand was quite similar to our trademark here in four or five different values. Um, the consistent one um, through all my teams has always been relentless, um, you know, to, to never give up. Um, you know, to never make excuses. And I think, you know, good teams that can have a growth mindset, um, you know, always do those things well. We really added selflessness to this team in Melbourne. When I first joined, it was something that um, everybody felt they were always talented, but they were never uh, quite willing to sacrifice enough for, for their teammates or for their club. And so that was has been a value that's really been added Um but you know, accountability, execute, um, you know, physicality, the hardness that you play with are, are all some values that over my time have, have continued to be popular ones with with sporting teams and basketball teams. Would you mind sharing the the trademark that you have at present with your team? Yeah, no, we we share, which is selfless, um, hard, accountability, relentless, execute are the, are the words that we that we use on that okay. team and. And to, to try and live it, you know, we've broken it down even further to finish a practice. Um, the, the selfless side of it is how did you make someone better? And so we'll ask that question after practice. Um, how was your physicality, which was the, the hard of what we did? Did you make others better with screening? Did you compete? on every rebound um, did you dive on the floor did you do all the little extra things that that help teams win um, and then how did you execute what was um, prescribed or taught before practice you know did you achieve it in the day uh, did you execute offensive and defensively what we wanted to get done um, over the day and so we ask our players to, to either rate themselves or to rate their teammate and give yourself a ticker across in all those three areas and try and build a consistency in our behaviours and practice every day. What was the process you went through to build those trademarks up? Yeah, it's always the, um, we have a facilitator in Trent Houghton who I grew up with who played um, elite basketball and, and, you know, played games for both Carlton and Collingwood. Um, but was a, you know, was a childhood friend that we practised with he would practice and help me with my basketball and then I would help him with his football pre-seasons and do his 50 100s and kind of crazy things that the AFL used to do in, in pre-seasons. And so uh, we went through a, a lot together and uh, built a, a great relationship and a great trust. But yeah, he's our facilitator. He'll come in and, and lead these sessions. And I think building your trademark is kind of um, 
you know, taking an approach of how do you want others to perceive us? How do you want others to talk about us? Um, and they're the words that, you know, if they, we come out of a game to say, oh, they shared the basketball, you know, they're really unselfish. They, they were so physical today. We couldn't get over their screens. You know, they held each other accountable. They did all those things. They executed. You know, we want teams to talk about us in, in that manner. It sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I, um, I want to just uh, sort of drill into the, another side of coaching if I can, because um, in the 2014-2015 season, when you won the title, it was on the last play. And when I was re-watching uh, that um, in preparation for today, I could see that you were heavily involved in, you know, in calling that play. It was almost like you were the, the sixth player. So I'd like to drill in and, and ask you, what's the role of a of the coach, particularly in a sport like basketball? Yeah, we, and we have quite a heavy influence on game day, you know, compared to other sports where um, probably your captain may have a greater influence in rugby or AFL. Um, we can, we stand on the sidelines, we can communicate with both the referees and our players um, we can give direction there. We have the ability to call our timeouts. Um, as you saw in that last game, we've, we've got, was it 2.3 seconds or 1.3 seconds left and we call a timeout and we execute a play and we get a shot to win a championship. And, um, you know, I'll obviously receive a lot of credit uh, for drawing up that play, but I certainly uh, deferred a lot of that credit to my assistant coach who who brought that play to our practice and um, we'd never really run it in a game but we he suggested it at the start of the timeout and automatically I said yep great and let's run with it and um, and, and it won us a championship so um, you know we have a huge influence over uh, the, the course of the game um, we try and make sure that our players huddles uh, equal to the to the knowledge that we can give as well. So we see every one of those stoppages in play that, you know, our ability of our team to gather, uh, huddle, get communication to either forget about a referee and move forward on the next play or celebrate something that was great. Um, as you said, the, the joy and people giving um, that love to each other during the game um, only allows them to perform better. You come across as a coach that has a deep and meaningful relationship with, with the players. And as you've just said, the coach is heavily involved in, in the team of basketball. But for a lot of people, finding the line between being a good coach and being a good friend is difficult to find. How have you managed that that tension in the relationships you've had with players? Yeah, it is it is an interesting one. And, and especially when I came from you know, 10 years of being an assistant coach as well, where um, probably that the line is is even thinner with that one, where you can really be a, a good mate um, to as an assistant coach and, um, you know, hang out a little bit more and go and play golf and, and do different things. And I think you remove yourself a little bit more from some of those relationships as a head coach at different time where, um, where you have more interaction off the floor um, in fun things and um, I struggled with that at different times um, but I think after a, this is most going into my seventh year as a head coach to um, to make sure I, 
I think we've got everybody, you know, where we both feel comfortable, where we we're have a really good relationship um, at practice, talk before, talk after, really limit to in our communication post-game. I really, we really just let the players go. We don't have a, a post-game briefing, um, but then we catch up the next day and, uh, and, and talk about those things. So, um, But, you know, yesterday I went, one of our players is here from New Zealand right now, um, has two young kids, um, he's not able to go back and, and share those kids with his own family right now. And my daughter at 12 was offered to babysit. And so we do that. And we went out and had a hit of golf yesterday. And, and so, yeah, just being able to do, you know, those kind of things in this different time um, has offered, um, you know, strength in our relationship as well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You have a reputation as a coach who keeps their poise as I think you just illustrated in that last uh, answer where you talked about trusting your assistant when he called that play. Um, and you, you seem to cope very well with the challenges of the game as they move up and down and you seem to remain very level headed. Are there any routines or systems you use to maintain that level of calmness before or during the game? You know, there was a book when I was in New Zealand called legacy uh, that was a, a, about the all blacks and how they went about um, their culture and, and how they lived it and how they changed it, you know, during time. And, and they had a, they had a, um, a mindset that they called the blue zone. Uh, obviously, the red zones when you blow your top and um, the blue zones, there's a, there's a calmness right there. And uh, I think after my first year as head coach, um, the – CEO at the time, Richard Clark, walked in and presented this book to all the coaching staff and we read it and um, I thought it was one of my feedbacks from the review that year um, that they just, this is what they wanted from me. They wanted these three things. Just give us the technical knowledge. We don't need a rah-rah speech before the game and during the game, you know, make sure that you don't get too low, you know, presented dropping my head or body language that was quite poor when we we didn't execute the way I wanted us to and I probably got too high in um, in some of the good moments as well. So they asked me to stay in this zone a lot more and so um, that kind of helped shape me um, as a coach to, to try and remain in that area and, and give my players um, the clarity that they needed to perform the job. So is there any routine or is it just as simple as saying, 
Dean, it's Blue Zone today. <laughs> I have some checkpoints with my assistant coaches to say, because when I, I'm normally not going to um, go to a red zone from my own players, not, not very often, but referees can, can have me spill over a little bit. So um, there's a few taps on the back of the shoulder to, to Dino, move on, you know, let that go and come back to, to, my, to my blue zone. It sounds like you place a lot of trust and rely on your assistant coaches a lot as well. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of that interplay between the head coach and the assistant coaches? Yeah. And when I think back, when you're, when you're talking about uh, how do I get to that blue zone, there's routines through the day on game day for me to say, you know, I need my exercise on game day whether that's running around the botanical gardens, whether that's walking the beach for an hour, but I, I need that, that time, you know, during the day where it's just me and I'm doing some form of exercise, maybe listening to music, but just a, an escape, you know, through the day for an hour. I, I, I normally really like to travel to the game by myself, grab, a, grab my coffee, and there's some routines there that I feel like allow me to, to, to get into that space. Um, yeah, the relationship with assistant coaches, you know, over my time, um, six years, uh, Paul Ionari took over from assistant to head coach at the New Zealand Breakers. Uh, Simon Mitchell, after the championship, was my assistant at Melbourne. He, he's gone on to coach um, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. Mike Kelly was also the assistant that year. He's gone on to win coach of the year last year at the, at the Cairns Taipans. Um, you know, Ross McMaines, who was with us this year, has already been to the NBA and has a chance to go back to the NBA. So I've always um, had assistant coaches that really aspired to be head coaches and I think I've been a good step in their pathway uh, to, to get where they wanted to get to. And hopefully if they were interviewed, they say that I gave them um, enough ownership of our team to really enjoy and um, be challenged in their position to, um, you know, really live that part of their job uh, for the team. And, and hopefully they, that they enjoyed the role that I gave them. I'd like to, uh, it's, a, it's a great answer. Th- thank you for sharing it. And, and I was going to ask you later on about the, one, the, uh, the assistants that have gone on from your program to, uh, to success, and it must be something you're so proud of. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit, actually, about uh, Black Lives Matter because I heard you talk uh, recently about it and I thought it was, was actually quite inspiring. Would you mind sharing your story about it? I heard how you went along... I think with your, no, you didn't go with your daughters. You went along by yourself. But as a result, you came back and you started engaging present players and past players on their racism experiences. And you started making changes at your club. Um, so if I could just get you to talk a little bit about that, because I know there's a lot of, a lot of people who are coaches and they struggle to manage the prejudices that exist within their own teams. Yeah, I think it was, it was just a really good opportunity to to really check yourself and to say you know are you being fair in and providing opportunities for everybody or are you prejudiced in some areas yourself and I think it was a really good checkpoint you know my my kids are all mixed race um you know my wife is Samoan um I have a child um also 
his mother was Zimbabwean. Um, you know, there's there's all my kids, and I, I'd love them to have gone to that kind of rally to say, you know, this was a this was a time that we we really made change. It didn't make sense to do that with with COVID, and um, but I felt I needed and wanted to be a presence. I was stood down from my own work until um, I got a, a negative test, um, which was great from our club. I, I'm glad they took that stance. Um, but I, I wouldn't have changed uh, going. You know, I wanted to, to go and do that. Then as a club, you know, we were challenged um, by how our, team, our club and even our league, you know, reacted to Black Lives Matters in saying that we were a little bit slow. Uh, to really put out a statement about how we felt. And there was a, uh, a community of, of black players within our league, whether that be South Sudanese, whether that be Aboriginal, whether that be American, that, um, you know, we're really disappointed in how we acted uh, or not acted. And so it was important that we got together uh, former players, um, some had, that had stayed here and become Australians from, from America. Um, Shay Ili, who was Samoan. Um, Joe Akul, who was South Sudanese. Um, we had Kane Muir, who was an Aboriginal player from my, my past in, in juniors at Melbourne. And really just allowed them to, to speak about uh, their time in basketball um, how did racism affect them? And, and even after their playing career, you know, did they feel that um, racism was a part of them not getting jobs or did they get the same opportunities? And so um, it was a good first step and it was a good step in um, our club doing something, you know, really proactive. And now we've got to get to the point of making sure that we, we really follow up and really take greater action, you know, moving forward in, in how we have greater opportunities for all to apply for our jobs. We don't have, we have, our CEO said that we've never actually had um, an application from, uh, from a, from a colored person for anyone in our, in our office. And it's like, wow, are we doing something wrong or is, are we not allowing them the skills to apply or how do, how do we change all these kind of things as well? So, um, yeah, lots of steps to take, but it was a, it was a good start. Fantastic. Um, it's a, such an issue that all organisations will need to face, private sector, sporting, cultural groups, and it's uh, so important that we all take these steps forward, I think. How in the past have you managed to influence the disruptive peer pressure that can often uh, bubble up within a team? Yeah, we had a great case this year. Um, I'm sure it'd be a great case study for somebody. Um, you know, a team that got together very late because of the uh, the world champs and um, had players with both New Zealand uh, and Australia, and we we really didn't get to embed the culture like we wanted to and the values. It was everything was rushed that we did, and um, you know, it resulted in not a great start to the season and. But then we, we found our way and went on a six-game winning streak and everybody, you know, sacrificed through that period. And then coming out of it, um, everyone thought it was okay. And um, But there was a jealousy within our group that people didn't feel like um, the, they were involved enough, that they were contributing enough. And um, 
And I think people really held back on those conversations as well. And I think it took four or five weeks for um, people to really come forward and, you know, voice um, something that was holding them back from being at their best as well. And, and I didn't do a good enough job in recognising exactly what the issue was um, and nearly until it was too late. And once we um, got ourselves to a forum where everybody could express what they felt the problem was, um, how we made some adjustments to our lineups uh, to cater for some of those things, um, we, we got to a point where we could have nearly won a championship. Um, once we got over that hump but the learning for me was to foresee um, some of those problems a little bit earlier and at the time um, listen to both the leadership group and the extreme talent that we had on the floor and find a better balance um, for that you know disruption that happened to us in the, in, in the mid-season. You have, uh, I was chatting with someone in preparation for this interview and they said, uh, you know, Dean is a tremendously honest person um, and that's one of his superpowers. But I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about self-doubt because you've been around multiple championship teams, but also others, as you've just pointed out, that, that have stumbled. What are your top tips for dealing with self-doubt as a coach? Honesty is one of my... Um when I look back and say, how will they speak about me as a coach in my time and say, yep, he was, he was honest, but he was probably too honest sometimes in recruiting as I'm going through this period. Um, I have to actually tell players that, Hey, I'm a, I'm a well-known underseller and, <laughs> and there's probably going to be more opportunities that I'm going to sell you on. And, and, and then my salesman pitches is always a little bit understated. So um, but I'd rather under-promise and over-deliver. But when you're recruiting, you've some, somewhere got to tread that line a little bit further. And, um, you know, I've lost a couple of players over years that I thought I should have either retained or recruited because I, I wasn't quite um, you know, as positive enough as, as they needed compared to other coaches in our league. Um, go back to the question I needed to, to get the honesty part as a negative <laughs> a little bit there. But uh, yeah, your top your top tips in dealing with self doubt because I'm sure it happens. Yeah, you know my my first year, um, everyone told me it was going to be a pretty tough coaching job. We just three peated, and I take on a team that um, you know we lost key members of our culture and Dylan Boucher and. Um, you know, CJ Bruton was on his last year as well and, and coaching a, a superstar in, his, in kind of his last year of his career. And, and I had a lot of self-doubt that year. You know, so, so many times it's like, wow, you think you're ready as an assistant coach. And then once you step into that head coach role, it's a, it's a totally different story. And so um, I had a lot of really positive people around me. Paul Blackwell, you know, was, was great for me as an ownership that year, um, Richard Clark, the CEO, and um, I thought the review process that we went through that year to really give me a guidance about how we move forward um, was outstanding as well. So um, I normally deal with a lot of things myself, but through those times of self-doubt, you know, having um, those mentors above you that could uh, reinforce 
you know, that you were living the culture, you were doing the right things, um, but you just needed to make some changes uh, to your to the personnel and to your own accountability to, to player relationships as well. In fact, you know, taking over a team that's just done a three-peat is difficult and history tells us that often the coach that takes over doesn't succeed. But that wasn't the case with you. You were able uh, within the season after to, to be back winning winning the title, winning the championship. What advice do you have for coaches who are taking over successful teams? Yeah, you know, it's always because, you know, you get the, I got the job a little bit because I was a part of that and it was, let's continue this, let's continue this run. We're doing a lot of things right. Um, let's make sure that we can continue. And so I was conflicted a little bit that first year to say, do I just keep doing what's been done or do I put my own stamp on it? And so I felt like I probably was a little bit fake that year and trying to be the previous coach a little bit too much and, and not putting enough of my own personality and, and stamp on the team. So I think that would be you know, the first piece of advice. And I think I was ready X and O's wise, you know, for, for the challenge of head coach, but I wasn't ready for the leadership tasks that the head coach um, you know, deals with on a, on a daily basis. And so between season one and season two, I spent a lot of time with our team chaplain um, in going back to book study. You know, we've got three or four books and we'd read a chapter and we'd catch up every week and we, and we just went through um, leadership development. And um, it was, it was amazing, you know, for me. And, um, you know, to this day, um, you know, my chaplain is, a, is an important person to me. We, we catch up uh, on a weekly basis and um, just trying to keep me a little bit balanced because I know um, there's a kind of a, an obsessive nature to me that can get a little bit out of, out of balance with my work and my family and just to have someone who's a little checkpoint for you to make sure that um, all things are, are going okay um, is really good. Dean, if, if you don't mind me asking, what were those books? Um, that's a really good question right now. <laughs> um, you know, the, the ones I'm reading right now, um, you know, Legacy, The Culture Club, there are a couple that I've picked up over this, um, and Captain's Class are a couple of books that I've, I've got right now. But to tell you, actually, the book that, uh, the two books that were major influences at that time, I can't even tell you. So, um, yeah. No problem. Look, just, just lastly, um, if I could ask you the question around legacy and, and what it is that you believe the legacy that you've left and will continue to leave as a coach. Yeah, you don't, you don't often try and think about it. You know, I looked at Lindsay Gaze and was like, you know, what was his legacy in Victorian basketball? And, um, you know, Lindsay built stadiums and that was – you know, I, I hope that I can build stadiums. I hope that I can leave, you know, places for people to go and, and enjoy the game and be involved in um, the opportunity to, to see the game grow by building venues. Um, you know, I think obviously the legacy that you say, why did we win the championship that, that first year was, was, was bringing our culture to a, to a club that was lacking a little piece of it. So, um, I hope that part will continue that people will, um, you know, speak about me as 
an honest, um, highly accountable coach that allowed players to play to their strengths and have fun. You know, that would be that would be a nice way for people to talk about my coaching. Dean, it's a wonderful way to finish. I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating chatting with you and all the best for getting the team uh, back out on the court and for the season when it begins. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim Wolfrey and you've been listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. It was a real pleasure having Dean Vickerman as our first great coach. His honest perspectives on coaching were uniquely refreshing. His insight in understanding how disruption can quickly destabilize a team if not addressed quickly enough, along with his own personal actions on the Black Lives Matter agenda were incredible. Just like Dean, you will hear many of the great coaches we chat to mention the book Legacy by James Kerr. It is a sensational read that goes deep into the heart of the world's most successful sporting team, the legendary All Blacks of New Zealand. It is an inspiring read for leaders in all fields. Coming up, I speak with Dwayne Nestor, the head coach of the Australian Women's National Rugby Union team, also known as the Wallaroos, as they prepare for the 2021 World Cup in New Zealand. As a coach, I've moved from process to outcome uh, almost to the extreme. I think the best coaches are able to meet in the middle um, and to be able to understand the real detail of a process, but be able to get an athlete to create an outcome that can be executed under the highest pressure on a consistent basis. It's certainly an episode not to miss. Paul and I hope you will join us again soon.